Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Here we want to get you information so you can be proactive in your health. Do you remember the days when cholesterol was a bad guy and we had to avoid cholesterol because it was a villain? I've actually got memos that the sugar industry sent to Harvard saying, make sure you keep that story up because sugar's a good guy. Do you remember how we're all worried about fats and how unhealthy they are and we've got to not eat fats? This has been a disaster. I mean, this has been a whole orchestration uh, affecting the government, affecting what the recommendations, and the doctors all bought it. And we've had a lot of unhealthy people as a result of this. It turns out no fat was the wrong way to go. We need fats. We need healthy fats. The healthy fats um, such as avocado oil, olive oil, coconut oil. Unhealthy fats, such as the corn oils, vegetable oils, highly processed um, oils, especially canola oil, rapeseed oil, they are cause of many, many health problems. They go into our cell walls, and our cells can't communicate, and the information we've been fed, like pablum, is not correct. So we want to find out more about heart disease. We want to find out more about cognitive decline. We want to find out more about how we can stay healthy, keep our hearts healthy, and keep our brains healthy. So to do that today, we have an expert. His name is Peter Rogers. He's a physician, and he uh, was at Stanford in 1985. He was a student athlete of the year. He went to medical school, and his residency boards were 99%. He had a fellowship at Harvard at Brigham and Women's Hospital in interventional radiology, especially focusing on imaging-guided surgery. He focused on vascular disease and then in neuroradiology at Rush. He used to be, well, he says is, I don't want to offend anybody, but fat, in his 30s, and then he lost all his weight and kept it off for 16 years. I want to hear about that. He's an expert on vascular disease, brain disease, nutrition, and cognitive optimization. He's a full-time neuroradiologist, but still does some interventional procedures. He also has a YouTube channel, which you could find at Peter Rogers, MD. So welcome, Dr. Rogers. Uh, Yeah, well, thank you. What got you interested in this area? Well, it came out of three things. The first one was I was surprised that I got fat in my mid-30s, and I was really kind of shocked by that, you know, because I had been an athlete when I was younger, and I also had about the highest biochemistry score in the entire United States out of all medical students, and nutrition was part of that. And because of that, I assumed that I knew nutrition. So the last thing in the world I expected was to get fat. It was a year when I was working too much. I was trying to combine two fellowships into one, and I wasn't sleeping enough, just had a baby at home with the wife, and I got up to drinking seven cups of coffee a day. But then I figured, okay, well, that year was over. I'll just, you know, exercise more and eat less. Everybody knows that. But I couldn't lose the weight for another three years. And then my cousin, who's kind of a bit of a health nut, was teasing me. She said, you know, if you know so much about nutrition, Mr. Doctor, then why are you so fat? And I was embarrassed. I realized she was right. So... 
I decided I'm going to devote myself to understanding nutrition and weight loss to figure this out, because uh, obviously I had failed at that. In addition, my mother um, had gotten cancer, and you know, I sent her to a very good oncologist, very good surgeon, the two best around in our area, and she was only supposed to live two years, but she lived for uh, 12 years. But then later on, I started seeing there were some of these cancer patients who had been able to live 30 years despite having poor initial prognoses. Um, also, my father, I had recommended him to improve his diet, but I didn't know enough at the time. And he went on and had open-heart surgery, and he did okay, but he had a stroke a couple years later. So the, what I was basically saying was I had thought I was this great doctor, but then I kind of came to the realization, if I'm such a great doctor, how come I'm fat? My father has heart disease and he's going for surgery, and my mom you know, is dying of cancer. Obviously, either medicine can't do much or I'm screwing up. I'm not. I'm missing something from this situation, and I want to start learning about it. So I did extensive study of coronary artery atherosclerosis, in addition to my other work that I'd already done, and studying cancer and weight loss. And um, I just became fascinated by it. So I've been studying it pretty thoroughly since then. That was over 20 years ago. Well, you know, I remember, I, I really don't remember uh, nutrition in medical school, and I think uh, what that one hour or so I slept through it. So what was your training in medical school, and what uh, studies have you pursued in nutrition since then? Yeah, well, in medical school, you learn biochemistry, but it's mostly as a prelude to pharmacology, and it's considered nutrition, and so the students think they know nutrition, but the reality is that they do not. To know nutrition, one has to study, you know, what is the effect on body weight, what is the effect on atherosclerosis, what affects risk of cancer, and, you know, other related things. So once I began to study it a lot more extensively, I started to realize the fastest way to figure out what works in nutrition is to look at epidemiology. And if you look around the world, the patients that have maintained their traditional diets, um, primarily, let's say, that are separate from all the cities, from all the urbanized areas, they're skinny, they've got a lot of energy, a lot of endurance, and they have next to zero hypertension, zero obesity, zero diabetes. A good example is to look at northern Mexico, where the Tarahumara are located. That's a population of uh, people from Mexico. near. They're like the Sierra Nevada Mountains over there. And they initially were combined with another population called the Pima. And so the Pima, after the Mexican-American War, 1848, were then sort of uh, separated and live in Arizona, and they've taken on the standard American diet, which is very unhealthy, and they have tons of obesity, diabetes, gallstones, and everything that goes with it, blindness, kidney failure, and premature death. Whereas the Tarahumata, who stuck to the traditional ways, they eat primarily corn and beans and local greens. They're famous for having a holiday once a year where they run over 100 miles in two days. And a lot of people have gone to visit them and see that they're for real. They've measured their cholesterol. Their average cholesterol is around 130. They have like zero coronary artery disease, zero hypertension, diabetes. And there's been similar experience looking at other populations. Um, you know, for example, looking at the Okinawans. They sent over two American doctors, two brothers, the Wilcox brothers. They wrote a book called The Okinawa Program about this. They went there with the Japanese physicians to study Okinawa. Okinawa is kind of like what Hawaii is to America, to south of Japan. And they found that they had centenarians over there. They had a very high percentage of centenarians relative to other populations. And many of them were completely healthy. These are some persons 105 years old, no diabetes, hypertension. Um, they were incredibly healthy. So, 
you know, their diet, they were eating a lot of sweet potatoes. They gradually started phasing out the sweet potatoes, and as they have done that, they've gotten sicker. They've now got fast food uh, places over in Okinawa, and the population is no longer that healthy. But the older ones that had maintained their traditional ways were incredibly healthy. I would like to add, um, now that we're on this note, uh, the studies of Weston Price. He was a um, dentist, and he went to areas that are relatively untouched by modern fast food. And he found the people very healthy. They had wide faces, wide arches in their face, so their faces were wide, not long, elongated. They had healthy teeth. They weren't crowded. And they're all pretty healthy. And then this story repeats over and over again. You introduce them to a Western diet, which we call standard American diet or SAD, um, that they their health deteriorates. Their faces get narrower. Their teeth get crowded. They get, you know, their uh, dental disease. So he studied a lot of primitive cultures, and they're very healthy. And they have some commonalities. Usually they eat meat, and they've got healthy oils, etc., so I think you're on to something because any culture, when they uh, migrate to the United States, if they were healthy back in the mainland and the statistics are different, they kind of change to what the statistics are here, and we're a very unhealthy population. Yeah, so that's, that's a key thing, like you're mentioning, the, the, the concept of the migrants. For example, the Japanese were quite healthy and famous for having, for a big country, the longest-lived persons of any country in the world even though they smoked a lot of cigarettes, and they also had very high salt intakes. But it turns out if a person, uh, a person can get away with that to some extent. But when the Japanese went to uh, Hawaii and started having more westernized diets, and even more so once they came over to California, for example, they then started developing very high rates of atherosclerosis and cancer. And they tend to go together. You know, the same population that has high rates of atherosclerosis tends to have high rates of cancer, high rates of obesity, high rates of diabetes as well. So why? Uh, why? Why is this happening? What is it in our diet, and what can our listener learn? I mean, obviously, I keep repeating that we need to eat healthy, organic foods, healthy oils especially, not the corn oils, vegetable oils, highly processed oils that get rancid and oxidized very quickly, but we need to eat healthy. That's obviously one lesson. But what are the lessons you take from this, and how can our, re- our listeners use it? Well, yeah, it's multifactorial, but my recommendation would be, one of them would be never eat processed food. I spent a while studying processed food, and it's incredible the amount of added uh, chemicals to it. For example, there's the excitotoxic effects of things like MSG, things like aspartame, and in addition, one of the things I've been studying is the concept of estrogenic chemicals. And most people aren't aware of this, but they're exposed to a tremendous amount of estrogenic chemicals. And that's one of the reasons why I've known women who've had, every single woman in their family had to get a hysterectomy before the age of 35 because of fibroids. And when a person's exposed to high levels of estrogenic chemicals, it basically tricks their body into thinking that they're pregnant in a sense that they need to store weight for the baby. It activates something called the PPAR gamma receptor related to the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, and it causes weight gain. So I think that's one of the things that very few people are aware of, and the estrogenic exposures, they come from multiple different directions. As it turns out, if you look at a molecule of estrogen, it's basically a cholesterol steroid hormone, and in the corner of it, it has a benzene ring, that's where there's three double bonds, and it also has a hydroxyl group coming off it. So that combination of the benzene ring with a hydroxyl group is called a phenol group. And the phenol component 
that binds the estrogen receptor, forms a hydrogen bond with the estrogen receptor. So the point being is um, it turns out that the benzene ring provides tremendous stability. Um, those chemicals like BPA, bisphenol A, they can stay on a shelf for four or five years, and they don't spoil. And then because of the phenol group, the hydroxyl group attached to it, they're antimicrobial. And because of that, that wonderful combination from a corporate point of view of great shelf life and antimicrobial activity, they're in everything. Um, and the most common one you hear about is the parabens, parabenzoic acids, for example. And so these are in, in almost all these cosmetic products. They're in laundry detergent. They're in laundry um, softeners, the things you put in the dryer as well. They're in dishwasher soap. So what am I getting at with all this? I think it's a wise move to be a minimalist. Um, that's my, that has been my approach. Or at least seek out the safer versions of things, because I think that's a, a common reason. Even like, for example, water filtration. At a minimum, a person should have a carbon uh, filter on their water. I recommend one for the whole house. Those are a little more expensive, and at the very least, have one in the kitchen, because those will remove the estrogenic chemicals. They will remove organic chemicals, and estrogen is an organic chemical. It will also remove the chlorine. You need chlorine until the water reaches your house, but you don't want chlorine in the water you're actually drinking. Yeah, um, so I I'd think like that's one of the big exposures of uh, estrogenic chemicals. Yeah, I would like to add on that a little bit because toxins is a very important uh, detriment to our health. I mean, you, you'll find some products that say BPA-free, but they substitute BPU, BPS, and all sorts of other things that are equally bad, and the consumer does not know it. These uh, leach into our food, especially if you've got something oily like tomato sauce or something acidic. We're eating this stuff, and we're accumulating it. Some of these toxins actually lower our IQ. I mean, there have been studies that fluoride will lower the IQ six or seven points. There's been study that lead will do the same, and one other the chemical that I'm uh, forgetting the names at the moment do the same. But also you mentioned aspartame, which at least two years ago in the hospital I work in, that every single uh, you know beverage had aspartame in it. Aspartame is a neurotoxin. Also, when the FDA approved it, they knew it caused cancer. They were actually going, this is what I'm told, they were going after the industry because they falsified some studies concerning cancer, but then uh, Donald Rumsfeld was hired to get um, aspartame approved. So they, um, they, they added somebody to the committee at the FDA, so the vote was equal, and then somebody at the top approved aspartame. And this neurotoxin that is carcinogenic is in all of our soft drinks. What the F is going on? Yeah, I, I would strongly recommend avoiding anything with aspartame in it. Because, you know, it's, it's specifically, it's an excitotoxin. It sort of stimulates or activates the postsynaptic cell. In the brain, you have neurons communicate with each other across what's called the synapse, and they release the neural, uh, neurotransmitter at the first neuron, passes across the synapse to the postsynaptic neuron, and it activates it. And so aspartate does that, which is part of aspartame. In addition, glutamate does it, which is part of MSG, monosodium glutamate. But both of them are what's called excitotoxins. And if you combine these with other things that inhibit the metabolism of those neurons, you can drive those, you can overstimulate those neurons while simultaneously undersupplying them with energy, and they can go into program cell death called apoptosis. So that's what's called excitotoxicity. And also people are eating way too much sodium, which is especially present in processed foods. And the reason I mention it is 
Sodium causes vasoconstriction, narrowing of the arteries. So if you simultaneously are eating a lot of MSG while you're also ingesting a lot of aspartame and you're overactivating those uh, neurons in your hippocampus, your memory center of your brain, while you're simultaneously eating a lot of sodium and vasoconstricting the arteries, you now have a neuron with increased metabolic demand but simultaneously diminished blood supply. And that neuron can die because it doesn't, when a neuron runs into that problem, overactivity with undersupply of oxygen or glucose, um, it'll sometimes um, just die. And, and the person who does that every day, day after day, they're lowering their IQ. And that will increase, uh, I mean, I understand that you get these excitotoxins in there, you get the glial cells, it just kind of helps with immunity going, and you can't really turn them off. So you start a process, and won't that lead to a continued gradual deterioration of brain cells? Yes, and it's often now combined with multiple other things. For example, diabetic patients, in the past, they would just stick their finger about, you know, three times a day or two times a day to get an estimate of how much insulin to give themselves, for example. But as it turns out, nowadays, some of them have these continuous glucose monitors, DGMs, and they can get a readout of their blood glucose every 30 minutes or even more frequent overnight. And what they found is a lot of them are hypoglycemic at night. And that's a problem because in order to maintain the cell membrane ion pump, the brain cells need tons of energy. They need a lot of glucose. And if they don't get it, then they have less ability to handle these excitotoxins, for example. Those cells are more likely to die in the brain. Another common thing is obstructive sleep apnea. And again, you know, people didn't used to know what was going on with these sleep apnea patients at night when they stopped breathing for a while. That's what apnea means, to stop breathing. And nowadays they do sleep studies on a lot of them, and they put a pulse ox, oxygen saturation monitor, on their finger, and they found that a lot of them are dropping their oxygen saturation at night into the 80s, sometimes lower for prolonged amounts of time. So you can see what a, what a mess this is. Simultaneously, the same person might be hypoglycemic from their diabetes, because a lot of diabetics, uh, being overweight, diabetic often goes with having sleep apnea. They're dropping their blood sugars. They're dropping their oxygen saturation. A lot of them are eating uh, meals with lots of sodium, lots of aspartame, and MSG. And they're overexciting those neurons while dropping the oxygen and blood supply to them. And so they're very high risk for progressive cognitive decline and early onset dementia. Well, also, diabetes itself is an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. They used to call uh, Alzheimer's disease diabetes 3. So I think every time the sugars go high, it's an insult to the brain. And as you're saying, every time the sugars go low, it's an insult to the brain. So it's important to have stable blood sugars. Yes. So tell us more about um, heart disease and its connection to Alzheimer's. Well, another thing I would mention to you that I think is really interesting and very useful is what is one's concept of the most common causes of dementia? And quite often people learn in school, oh, Alzheimer's is the most common, and then they learn something called the beta amyloid hypothesis, of this extracellular protein beta amyloid that'll sometimes accumulate and somehow that's associated with, uh, you know, neuronal damage. And there is some truth to this research about beta amyloid, and it is a component of neurodegeneration. But I want to share with you what I consider a much better model of the primary cause of neurodegeneration. And it comes from, I figured this out on my own, that 
the most common reason why people are becoming demented is because of apoptosis. Um, and I'll, I'll show you with, with you what that's about. I'm a neuroradiologist. I've looked at many thousands of brains, the brain MRIs, and for patients with memory loss, dementia. And I try to figure out why did this happen. And the classic description of Alzheimer's is most prominent atrophy within the hippocampus and the medial temporal lobe. Okay, so most severe atrophy in the hippocampus memory center and the medial temporal lobe, which is associated with the hippocampus, right next to it. However, when I look at these brains, that's not what I usually see. What I most commonly see is a diffusely atrophic brain. And, you know, we'll sometimes see evidence of atherosclerosis in the brain. The most commonly on a brain MRI is high, high signal, so bright spots. These even call them UBOs, unidentified bright spots. But nowadays we know that they're primarily due to atherosclerotic, uh, lack of blood supply, ischemia. But the point I'm making is quite often there's none of that. And despite having no obvious signs of atherosclerosis, I'll, I'll sometimes have these brains, and I'll have old versions of their brain MRI from 20 years ago or 15 years ago, and I just see progressive shrinkage of the brain. So I said to myself, how could the brain be shrinking, but I can't see any reason for the brain shrinkage? And there's no major atherosclerosis in the feeding arteries of the brain, the carotid arteries, the vertebral arteries, for example, that would indicate a big decrease in blood supply in terms of the big vessel. Uh, but here's, here's where the big secret comes out. So I figured, you know, when you have a stroke, that's a sudden blockage of an artery supplying the brain tissue, and the neurons will just die all of a sudden. And because they die very rapidly, they cannot maintain their membrane ion pumps, the uh, potassium-sodium ATPase pump, and the cell membrane just breaks apart. And the inner contents of the cell, they're just released into the surrounding environment, the surrounding extracellular matrix it's called, and that causes a big inflammatory reaction. The immune cells, the microglia come in there to clean it up. But that's not what happens most often. That's sometimes called, you know, to be demented because of a stroke is called infarct dementia, multi-infarct dementia, but that's, that's actually relatively uncommon. What I see all the time is just a progressively atrophic brain. And how could the brain shrink, but we can't see anything in MRI? Here's the secret. It's called apoptosis. We referred to it earlier in the context of the hippocampus alone and excitotoxicity, but it happens all through the cerebral cortex. The word cortex means bark, like the bark of a tree, and that's because the gray matter, the neuron cell bodies, where the nuclei are, where the DNA is, they're all located on the periphery, the outer surface of the brain. And when they don't get enough oxygen, they need four times as much oxygen and glucose as the other nerve, as like the, the axons, that's the long part that travels the far distances to have a synapse, for example, they need a lot more oxygen and glucose, so they just start dying, and they gradually shrink away. But because it's a programmed cell death, it's a gradual thing that happens over the course of days, weeks, and months, they, they recycle themselves. Their inner contents are put into organelles. They're released into the extracellular environment gradually, and the microglia clean them up, but there's no edema. There's no inflammation. There's no mess for us to see. Okay, so now I just described the mechanism of brain shrinkage. Programmed cell death due to apoptosis because of a lack of healthy nutrition, blood, and oxygen going to those brain cells. Okay, so then you start asking yourself, well, what's going to cause uh, a lack of blood supply and glucose to these neurons? And here it comes. We just talked about obstructive sleep apnea. If they're dropping their oxygen supply every night, they're progressively losing neurons every night. You know, the brain has a lot of neurons, approximately 100 billion. And um, it's losing them every night from that obstructive sleep apnea. It's losing them every night from 
uh, diabetes-related episodes of hypoglycemia and dosing their insulin too high. But it goes way beyond that. Very common in the United States, tons of people are hypertensive. And if they're over-treating their hypertension, they're dropping their blood pressure during those times, and they're potentially uh, dropping the amount of oxygen and glucose and nutrient supply to those brain neurons. And then you start thinking about what are the other diseases that could cause chronic cerebral hypoperfusion. By the way, uh, where a lot of this work came from, there's a researcher, a PhD by the name of Jack Delatore, and he calls this the vascular hypothesis of dementia. And his work comes out of studying mice. He would tie off the carotid artery in mice, and they would find that quite routinely the mouse would become demented about two months later. So then they would take the mice to autopsy, and they had expected to see big strokes. And then what they found, though, was what they most often saw was just an atrophic brain, consistent with the neurons going into apoptosis. And so then you start thinking about, well, gee, there's a lot of things that can cause chronic cerebral hypoperfusion. That means a chronic uh, lack of blood supply to the brain or chronic episodes of lack of blood supply to the brain. For example, atrial fibrillation is quite common, and medical doctors are trained to think of sluggish flow within the heart, the left atrial appendage will form a blood clot, and that can then sometimes become dislodged and go up to the brain and cause a stroke. And it's true, we do sometimes see that. But it's much more common with the atrial fibrillation patients to become demented just because atrial fibrillation means that the, the first part of the heart is called the atria, and that's a storage center for blood that then pushes it into the ventricle. The ventricle is the main pumping part of the heart. And then this is called the atrial kick, when the atria contracts to push blood into the ventricle. And then that, the ventricle contracts and pushes that up to the brain and the rest of the body. But when you have atrial fibrillation, you kind of lose. It's called the atrial kick. And that can be up to, you know, one-fourth of cardiac filling. So that chronic lack of filling of the ventricles before they pump and contract is causing a chronic diminishment of blood supply to the brain. So what a person should do, I believe, is try to be as healthy as they possibly can be because in so doing, they're going to minimize all these problems. Um, in countries where they eat, you know, healthy diets, they almost never get type 2 diabetes. And that's a major contributor to this whole cascade of, you know, harmful to the brain conditions. Wow. So what can, uh, other than eating healthily and try to get exercise and try to get good sleep and learn how to deal with stress so your body isn't racked out by it, what do you recommend to our listeners? Yeah, well, well some of those things, like you were saying, stress, for example, is a major contributor to poor uh, vascular health. Because, you know, people used to think when I was younger, oh, stress is just an emotional thing. Oh, no, it's far more than that. It's related to the whole p sympathetic response, you know, the fight-or-flight response. And the classic way in medical school that, that basically the nervous system has two main phases. One of them is called sympathetic, and you can think of that being like the accelerator in a car, and the other one is called parasympathetic. And you can think of that being like the brake in the car. So Sympathetic, the stress response, is an acute accelerator. And that, the way to remember it is being chased by a tiger in the dark, and it's the fight-or-flight response. So when that happens, blood pressure is ramped up, and, um, but it does more than that. So if you think about being chased by a tiger in the dark, one of the things that happens is you might get scratched by the tiger and bleed. So the blood becomes more prothrombotic. The blood becomes thicker. 
and that it increases something called fibrinogen, which is a blood clotting chemical, a protein. It also increases von Willenbrand factor. It causes platelet activation, increases factor eight, antihemophilic factor. So the thickening of the blood is part of the reason why persons who are very stressed out are more at risk to have a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. So if you have a family member who's getting overly stressed and might have a lot of cardiac risk factors, try not to stress them out. So that contributes to it. Um, and then other things mimic, I call them stress equivalent. You have to be careful with caffeine because caffeine is a stress equivalent. It elevates the same hormone. The hormones are cortisol, that's a big stress hormone, and the other one is adrenaline and noradrenaline. They're also called epinephrine, norepinephrine. So caffeine's a stress equivalent being sleep deprived. And, you know, lack of sleep insomnia causes uh, the same stress hormones to be elevated. And it's very quick. You can see how a person can have multiple stressors. They can be upset about something emotionally, and because of that, they don't sleep. And the next day, they go, gee, I'm kind of tired because I'm stressed out. And then they start drinking coffee or you know, smoking a cigarette or something. And that's also another stimulant that can recreate some of these effects. So now they can have simultaneously four stressors. And they can really amplify these effects, and that's, you know, that's not good for their cardiovascular health. Um, I'd like to point out, Mark, per- Mark Houston, who had been on this show, mentioned that there's probably at least 400 risk factors for a heart attack, and I imagine they're the same for brain deterioration. Heart, you know, it could be sleep, stress, etc. But the heart always, and the endothelium, the lining of the vessels always react in the same way. So there are many, many stressors. But tell me, in the, in the time where we've been closed down for two years, people are losing their businesses. People are stressed out because of the finances. Prices are going up. There might be war. Uh, we're thinking, oh my God, the you know theme that I remember in the 50s, oh, the Russians are coming. Um, all these stressors and just watching TV, what does somebody do with that, especially since they can't afford food or gas, or what do they do with the stress? Okay, well, I'll give you a couple suggestions that I think can help. One of them, of course, is exercise. When you exercise, um, it distracts you, of course, and that's good for you. In addition, it gets you to have much more improved lymphatic flow. So the lymph vessels are a almost like the vascular system. They run parallel to your arteries and veins, but they're separate from them. And basically, proteins and other material leaks out of cells, leaks out of blood vessels, and a lot of times these particles are too big to get into the blood vessel right at the capillary location. So the lymphatics are the cleanup system for your extracellular matrix, the space in between cells of your body. And lymphatic flow is increased 10 to 30-fold when a person exercises. So getting some exercise every day, and a good way to do it is just work it into your entire day. Try to stand up more often, have a standing desk if you can. When you go to the bathroom, go to the far bathroom. That extra exercise, you're cleaning out your extracellular matrix. So if you look at cancer survival, for example, patients who exercise, they've got better survival outcomes. Um, Of course, having a social support system helps. That helps to relax a person, a feeling of social support, acceptance, and whatnot. That's all good. You know, pleasant music, lower stress. You know, lowering stress is one whole big topic. Um, Getting back to nutrition, I think one of the best things you could eat is starches for calories. When I say starches, I mean things like potatoes, sweet potatoes, beans, rice. They tend to be relatively cheap, and because of the fiber, they are relatively low in caloric density. 
So they stretch the stomach. That causes early satisfaction of hunger. Then the food stuff goes into the intestinal tract, the small bowel, and now it takes a lot of time for the enzymes of digestion to peel away the fiber before the glucose, a starch is a polymer of glucose, a whole bunch of glucose molecules stuck together, covered in fiber. And then oatmeal is another good uh, starch in quinoa as well. Then once the intestinal digestive enzymes have peeled the fiber off, then the glucose is absorbed gradually into the blood, from the gut into the blood. And that causes a gradual, slow uh, rise in blood glucose, and it maintains a normal blood glucose level for a prolonged amount of time. In contrast to this, imagine you have a sugar-sweetened drink, or like the worst is a high-fructose-sweetened drink, and the aspartame, that's the whole ballpark with the aspartame. But what I'm saying is when it's a a sugar-sweetened drink, you don't have any fiber to stretch the stomach. You don't have any fiber to slow down the rate of glucose absorption. So what happens is the blood glucose level shoots up high very rapidly, and that confuses the pancreas because there's not sugar-sweetened beverages in nature, and the pancreas sort of assumes that it's going to continue for a prolonged amount of time, and it cranks out too much insulin, and it starts rapidly releasing that insulin into the blood. Insulin is a hormone which helps to push sugar into cells. Um, helps them to absorb it, especially skeletal muscle after eating. And what happens here from drinking the sugary drink is the blood glucose spikes up very rapidly, then the pancreas overcompensates, releases too much insulin quite often, and it drives down the blood glucose rapidly. That's called rebound hypoglycemia. And then the person feels lousy when their blood glucose has suddenly dropped, so they go and they quite often repeat the process, and they'll eat some more sweets or sugary drink like soda pop, for example, blood glucose spikes again. So they end up with their blood glucose going up and down all day like a roller coaster rather than having it be a mild, gentle curve. And over time, that leads to obesity and increases the risk of fatty liver and diabetes. An interesting point that I learned was that if you eat a lot of meat and a lot of protein, that will also raise your insulin because you can only use so much. The way to get around that is to eat fat with the meat, and it's probably the same process that it slows the the amount that as it goes and absorbed into the body. But if you're going to eat the fat with the meat, you've got to eat grass-fed meat because the fats were all the hormones, insecticides, and antibiotics and God knows what else they're eating, glyphosate, et cetera, is stored. So even eating a lot of meat can disrupt your insulin levels, which will affect your sugar levels, which can affect your brain and diabetes and set off a very bad train in the body with oxidative stress and inflammation, et cetera. Yeah, the, the, the CAFO meat, you know, from the concentrated animal feeding operations, that's really poor quality food. Um, like you're saying, there's a lot of pesticides in there. They're fed heavily pesticide herbicide sprayed corn, for example. Um, and they're also given estrogens the last 90 days of life to fatten them up quickly before they... And so you're, you're eating a lot of estrogen. It's, it's, a, it's an unhealthy thing. You don't want to be doing that. And chickens are fed arsenic, at least they had been, to fatten them up. And uh, porks fed certain chemicals to fatten them up. And, you know, it doesn't matter if they're healthy or not because they're going to slaughter them. I think meat is healthy and a very good thing to eat, but we have to make sure that meat is uh, grass-fed and relatively healthy. Well, tell us more about heart attacks and what we can do to keep uh, prevent heart attacks. And strokes. Well, 
I, I think one of the best thing a person could do is make sure they're getting a lot of calories from starches. And it's also, I think fruits are a good thing. Fruits sometimes get a bad rap because they are sweet and the sugar in fruits is largely fructose. But in the context of eating fruit, they come from, you know, a better package, if you will. The fruit contains fiber. It also contains a lot of antioxidants. And it takes some time and effort to eat a fruit versus, you know, it takes no time at all to just guzzle a big soda pop. Um, also, I think that's part of humans' evolutionary biology, if you will. I believe the reason we have color vision from my study of it is so that we can recognize fruits when they're ripe. In addition, we have hands so we can pick fruit. It is one of the reasons why we've got hands. Um, the only thing, though, is fruits tend to be relatively expensive in comparison with starches. You know, oatmeal's cheap. You can buy a big, giant container of oatmeal, and it um, doesn't cost very much money. And the less processed, the better. Because the less processed the oatmeal, the more fiber it's going to have uh, for prolonged satisfaction of hunger. And when you prolong the satisfaction of hunger, you are able to satisfy hunger with fewer calories, and that leads to improvement in body weight. And then being thin... You know, a trim person has a much lower risk of becoming diabetic. Obesity is strongly associated with diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Okay. Well, arthrosclerosis has been mentioned as a contributor to heart disease. As I was saying, um, um, Mark Houston, who was on the show, says that the that there's probably 400 risk for arthrosclerosis and heart disease, but the heart always reacts in a, a predictable way. What can you tell us about arthrosclerosis and how it happens and how it contributes to heart disease? Well, there's, there's different things that will cause atherosclerosis, but one of them that's controllable is, uh, for example, if you eat excessive amounts of simple sugars, that will tend to drive up your blood triglycerides and your, you know, initially the chylomicrons after first eating, and that makes the blood thicker, increases the risk of clot formation or um, what's called rouleau formation. Rouleau formation is when the red blood cells stick together like a stack of coins. It's a French word. It means stack of coins in French. And that increases the risk. Um, the other thing, too, is I've done a lot of study of atherosclerosis, and there are several different theories of atherosclerosis, and they all kind of contribute but I think the most important one is what is called atherosclerosis theory. And what I mean by that is atherosclerosis, everybody knows about high cholesterol and all that, but that's really only a subset of atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis, and you're talking about you know, myocardial infarctions and strokes, it's an occlusion of an artery. And the most common reason for arteries to occlude is thrombosis. In addition, there's different um, researchers on atherosclerosis. There's cardiologists that have done research on it, vascular surgeons, cardiovascular surgeons, and then there's also pathologists. And in my experience, the pathologists are the best researchers of atherosclerosis. And the reason I say that is they're the ones that look at it under a microscope. And so they sit there and they see the plaques because they do lots of autopsies. They also get a lot of biopsy specimens. They get, you know, cardiac transplant specimens and whatnot. And... I can tell you what they told me and what I've read from looking at their research, that the primary initiating lesion in atherosclerosis is formation of a blood clot, a thrombus, um, in the involved artery. And when the artery occludes, especially if it occludes suddenly, that can cause myocardial infarction or a stroke. Um, over time, just like if you have a hematoma, that means a collection of blood from bleeding somewhere else in the body, 
the immune system goes in there, the macrophages, for example, and starts to reabsorb it. And then you end up with a scar, fibrosis, and it'll often calcify. And that's what one often sees in old atherosclerotic plaques. So um, my advice would be look at a list of atherosclerosis risk factors and try to minimize all of the ones that you can minimize. I mean, you can't minimize certain things. You know, you can't change your age. Men have increased risk of atherosclerosis. That's actually kind of interesting. Like you'll you'll hardly ever, almost never see a woman premenopausal have a myocardial infarction, and I used to wonder why that is. You know, people thought it was the estrogen. No, it's not the estrogen itself. It's because of menstruation. When red blood cells first come out of the bone marrow, they're more flexible. A red blood cell is basically like a bag full of uh, hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the oxygen-carrying protein, and they also have a plasma membrane, which is very deformable. It's one of the most deformable things in all of biology. And that's because the red blood cell is actually bigger than the capillary. Typical red blood cell is about 7 microns in diameter. Typical capillary is about 5 microns in diameter. And so the red blood cell will have to deform to pass through the capillary. And as time goes by, typical red blood cell lives about 120 days. And then the spleen is considered the graveyard for red blood cells. And that's because while the capillary is about 5 microns in diameter, the spleen will have these uh, capillary-like sinusoids, where they're only about 3 microns in diameter. So if an old red blood cell is very glycated, very stiff, then it won't be able to pass through it a lice, and then the spleen has a lot of macrophages to clean that up. Okay, so what I'm basically saying, though, is when, bone, when red blood cells first come out of the bone marrow, that's where they're produced, they're more flexible. Over time, they become stiff from glycation. So by menstruating every month, in a sense, the woman has a therapeutic phlebotomy so her red blood cells, are, they're more younger RBCs. In addition, her total hematocrit, that means the amount of red blood cells she has in her blood, the percentage of her blood that is due to red blood cells is lower. So her blood's more like water instead of like a milkshake. So this makes it easier for the heart to pump that blood through the capillary system. And so that's why, unless the woman has lots of risk factors, you know, she smokes cigarettes, she's 150 pounds overweight, they virtually never get a premenopausal myocardial infarction. But here's something I've seen that's kind of interesting surprise. Um, I've seen some women 50 to 60 years of age who are demented and who've had strokes, and they don't have any obvious risk factors. They're not cigarette smokers, they're not substance abusers or alcoholics. And as it turns out, when I find these women who are demented or stroked out for unexplained reasons. I go back and I look in their history, and it's usually because they had a hysterectomy um, before the age of 35. So basically, once they have that hysterectomy, they've taken on the risk factors that a man has. They're no longer able to get rid of, uh, have that therapeutic phlebotomy and um, get rid of that iron load. I, well, iron's another story, the chemistry of iron, but Mayo Clinic did a study on women who have hysterectomies before the age of 35, a couple thousand, I think it was about 2,000 patients, and they found they have increased incidence of coronary artery disease, hypertension, dementia, congestive heart failure, um, because a lot of times women aren't as afraid of coronary artery disease and atherosclerosis as a man is. Men are scared because, you know, in their 30s, they start hearing about guys going impotent, they hear about other guys having myocardial infarction, so they start getting scared and they start learning about it, the smart ones, whereas I think women, you know, they're not hearing any of their girlfriends you know, worried about these things, so they sometimes neglect them. And if they still have poor health habits and eating habits, they're often becoming quite hypertensive. And then the other thing, too, is, you know, wh- why are they getting so many fibroids? There's lots of women who get uh, directings for fibroids. And I believe it's the water is the main source of it. 
there's other sources, too, from the dye, from the chemical exposures and all that, from the cosmetic products, from sunscreens, you name it. It's in all these things. But it's in water because, I mean, this for water filtration, their job, as they see it, is to prevent acute infections. And they've got the chlorine as the primary sanitizer of the water. That's something that could be attributed to them, let's say. But they don't, it's too expensive for them to filter out all the organic chemicals, like the atrazine, a very common herbicide sprayed on uh, the corn, especially sprayed on the lawns and grass sometimes as well. So the atrazine's in the water. Oral contraceptives are not removed from the water. So one woman, you know, urinates out her, her EE2 is a typical one, a final estradiol. And then that goes into the, the water system, and it's not getting completely removed. So people are ingesting a lot of estrogenic chemicals if they don't at least carbon filter their water. Because um, I, I've had these women tell me, oh, every woman in their family had to get a hysterectomy before the age of 35, and they don't all live in the same house or the same town. So I'm trying to think water seems to me like my best guess for why they're all having such high estrogen levels. Estrogen makes the fibroids uh, grow faster. Fibroid is a benign tumor of the uterus, and like a myomyoma, leomyoma. Um, so anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, that is very interesting. I mean, what I heard you say, it's interesting that red blood cells are slightly bigger than the capillaries, so it's important that the membrane be flexible. And you were saying glycation. What is that? That is from excess sugar or you uh, get sugar with heat or you eat too much barbecue sweetness on some meat you're cooking. And the glycation or just too much sugar in the system will make your uh, cell wall thicker so it won't go through the capillary. And then you don't get the nutrients and the things you need to the where it needs to go. Another thing, you mentioned Rouleau, and that's from a French word that it makes uh, cells rather be nice, warm, and springy. It kind of makes them look almost like a coin, a thick coin. And one thing that causes Rouleau cells is electromagnetic frequencies or frequencies from your cell phone. There was a, 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 Dr. Beverly Rubrick did studies, and she showed that if you have a cell phone even in your backpack or just close to you, it changes your blood cells from normal healthy cells to low cells. The low cells can't get through the capillaries very easily. So, you know, all there's so many, I mean, we touched upon toxins. and to, The toxic soup is a very important thing we need to consider. We need to get rid of the things that are not healthy and that are detrimental, and we need to add things that are healthy. So that's just something I wanted to add. Yeah, and I, I've also noticed, you know, there's a lot of infertility, and I think one of the things I see lots of men, they put their cell phone right in their front pocket. It's a low-power microwave transmitter, so they're microwaving their testicles all day long, and then they sit with, when they, when they have a laptop computer, they sit with the laptop computer right on their lap, right on top of their, their test, their scrotum again. So there, a lot of guys do that every single day, and a lot of them um, have low testosterone. Impotence has become very common. It can be a combination of atherosclerotic blockage of the arteries to the Johnson. It can also be due, as we're talking about, a decrease in libido in part related to this testicular atrophy. And then also on top of that, obesity. Um, when a person's fat, the fat cells, also called adipose cells, they have an enzyme called aromatase that converts testosterone into estrogen. So... Ingesting a lot of estrogenic chemicals in one's water and one's food, having it in, you know, cosmetic products, moisturizer, sunscreen, microwaving one's balls with the cell phone all day long, and the laptop computer right there, 
So that's part of why, like, impotence is so common now. It's about 30% of men in their 30s, 40% in their 40s, 50% in their 50s, 60% in their 60s. It's more common than it used to be. And uh, infertility, low libido, all these things are more common. And so the smart move is to learn something about estrogen chemistry. It's actually a pretty easy thing to study. What I mentioned earlier, the idea of the benzene ring with the hydroxyl group, the phenol group, so to speak, um, whenever that's in a substance, it's going to be estrogenic. There's a few other estrogens that are kind of strange. When I say they're kind of strange, I mean that they activate the estrogenic pathway, not necessarily at the estrogen receptor, but they still have an estrogenic effect. And the classic one is aluminum. Aluminum is considered a metalloestrogen, and this becomes very interesting with regard to breast cancer. Breast cancer is becoming more common, in particular in the upper outer quadrant. The upper outer quadrant of the breast used to be the site of about 25% of breast cancers, and now it's the location of about 60% of breast cancers. So then the question arises, well, what's causing these increased frequency of breast cancers in the upper outer quadrant? And it appears to be the big driver of that is deodorant. And it's thought that the lymphatics are shared between the breast and the armpit. The axilla is the medical word for it. And so a lot of people, they'll put a deodorant on there. Deodorant will typically contain aluminum because that plugs up the sweat pores. That's what makes it a antiperspirant. And in addition, it'll have preservatives in it, things like the parabenzoic acid or some equivalent. Um, parabens is what they're often called. And the skin is primarily lipid and keratin material. If you go swimming in the water, you, let's say you go swimming in the ocean, you don't suddenly gain 20 pounds of water going into your body. And what I'm getting at is, in chemistry, light dissolves light. And our skin is designed to keep water out. Water is a polar molecule meaning that there's different charges at its different ends. So each pole of the molecule can have a different charge versus a, that's called hydrophilic, you know, water-loving, hydro-water-philic-loving, versus a lipid is hydrophobic, water-hating, if you will, meaning that it tends to avoid water. That's why you put oil in water, they don't mix well. And the point I'm making is your skin's primarily lipid to prevent unwanted water absorption, theoretically, you know, with the idea that we evolved out of the sea, if that's really the case. But the reason I go into all that in chemistry, like dissolves like. So the point is a lipid chemical like these estrogens put onto your skin will be absorbed transdermally. And then to make it worse, a lot of people shave their armpits, and that increases the amount of transdermal absorption. So what I'm saying is they're putting two estrogens, um, the aluminum and the uh, paraben or other estrogenic preservative, right into their armpit, right on top of the lymphatics that are shared right next to the upper outer quadrant. And a lot of people do that every day. And then, again, you superimpose all these other estrogens on there. What estrogens do to the breast is, again, think of it as part of the pregnancy hormones to get ready for the baby. So they stimulate proliferation and replication of the breast ductal cells uh, to get ready to make milk for the baby. And so if you're constantly putting that stimulus upon the breast cells, you're increasing the risk of developing breast cancer and, the, and the, you know, the proximal steps that are sometimes associated with it, like fibrosis disease of the breast, for example. Oh, that's interesting. I'd also like to point yeah. out that a lot of men will take testosterone, but if your body's not healthy, through the aromatose pathway, it'll convert it to estrogen. You get more estrogen there. Uh, women put all this stuff on their bodies and makeup, and all that chemicals goes right in the skin. Even that stuff that you use to wipe your hands and sanitize them, that's some chemical going right into the body. But a question I have, uh, deodorants have had aluminum in them since the 70s, so I don't understand why... Uh, that, that all of a sudden the 
deodorant full of aluminum that people put on is increasing it. I suspect it's due to the other combination of the toxic soup that's so prevalent in our bodies. I mean, for example, EMF and well as glyphosate, which is in Roundup, which herbicides that Monsanto uses, they both uh, interfere with intercellular communication. They open up the blood-brain barrier. They open up the intestinal barrier. Glyphosate uh, interferes with detox pathways. It interferes with making tertiary means such as serotonin and tryptophan. But anyway, so the bottom line is we've got to eat healthy and avoid all these toxins. And anything that's not natural that your great-grandparents didn't have, I'd be suspicious. Anyway, we have three minutes left. So what final points do you have and how can people get a hold of you? And what are your final words to the audience? Well, a couple of things that can help. Um, one thing is also, just, just one more thing on breast cancers. I see a lot of women, they take their cell phone and they put it in the front pocket of their shirt. Again, it's a low-power microwave transmitter, and so they're microwaving their breast all day. It's not a smart thing to do. That'll increase their risk of breast cancer. Um, my sort of, like, rules of thumb would be, you know, you want to kind of live like Adam and Eve in the sense of being a bit of a minimalist. If they couldn't do it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. But, we, you know, we got the modern advantage. I certainly like living indoors with indoor heating and indoor plumbing. But I would kind of say be a minimalist. That'll save you money, too. Um, that, you know, go easy on all these things, cosmetic products, and be careful with the church and soaps. If anybody is curious to hear any of my other thoughts and ideas about health and lectures and nutrition and whatnot, um, I do have a YouTube channel called Peter Rogers MD, and I go through uh, lots of different health topics. Um, so that's kind of my overview there. Oh, maybe we should have you back. I'd like to add a little more on the cell phones. Hardell did studies showing that they're almost causative, uh, certainly associated with glioblastomas and acoustic neuromas. The US FDA did a study, the American Toxicology Study, showing that cell phone usage is connected to um, glioblastomas, a deadly brain tumor, and heart swanomas. Uh, Hugh Taylor in Yale and Suleiman Kaplan in Turkey independently showed they've put a cell phone on a pregnant abdomen. The offspring have brain damage, particularly in the hippocampus, which we have mentioned which is a memory center, which is one of the first things that goes in Alzheimer's disease. So anyway, uh, we look forward to having uh, Dr. Rogers return. Uh, We want to thank him for his wisdom. So we hope to give you information how you can be on the optimal path of wellness so you can do these steps. Uh, Share this information with your friends, your colleagues. Be sure to check with your physician so you make sure you're on the right path. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.